Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Cameron Beatty at Florida State University as our guest. Cameron, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Absolutely. Before we get into your work and your career and all that stuff, would you mind sharing a little bit with listeners about who you are outside of work, hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to, anything you want to share about the rest of Cameron? Yeah. Um, so this past year, I've, I've become much more of a dog person than I ever was. Uh, we had a dog growing up. In my adulthood, I had, I never, I'd had, had a pet just because I... I like to travel, I'm not home a lot. Um, and obviously given what happened in the world with the pandemic, um, this time last year, I was like, ah, let's, let's look to see who wants to be adopted. And um, for the past year, a lot of my time has been taken up by my precious little puppy, uh, Zora, Zora Neal Beatty. Um, for those of you, I always date myself when people ask me, my students used to ask me, oh, what, is, what kind of dog do you have? And I would say, do you remember the show Wishbone on PBS? She looks just like Wishbone. And they're like, who the hell is Wishbone? Um, <laughs> but she's a little beagle kind of hound mix, really enjoy her, walks, uh, playing with her has become a hobby you know, an everyday ritual uh, of sorts. Uh, currently I'm reading All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, which is kind of a, it's a memoir, but it's kind of a coming of age of, of thinking about exploring masculinity, black masculinity, understanding um, queerness, gayness in, in relation to being a young boy. Uh, and it's just, it's just been a really refreshing read. Uh, I've been connecting back to, you know, some of my own experiences and I love I love some good binge watching. It's been hard to watch. Like there's only like a handful of shows that I'm gonna watch week to week. So when someone tells me about a show and it's out, but it's like air, it's like in the middle of the season. I wait till it ends because I like to binge, uh, binge binge a series. Uh, so I'm about to get into uh, well, I'm, I'm, the only show I'm watching week to week right now is Pose. Final season, it's excellent. I've really enjoyed the season's acting and the writing has been superb. It's been it's been nice to enjoy a series that's showing the possibility of happiness mm -hmm. as as queer people, as trans people. And this writing this season has just, I've just been really impressed uh, with the writing. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going back to your dog here for a minute. So okay. if I were to interview Zora and ask her how the past year has been, what would she have to say? So I think I get on her nerves. <laughs> she gives me this side eye. So um, a few months into the po into the pandemic, we were just, I mean, I was, I was only seeing her. She was only seeing me besides, you know, when we were obviously out for walks. So I, I took her to daycare mm -hmm. to like get some socialization, get some around other dogs, get some ener puppy energy out. And she, I, so now I still take her once or twice a week and she absolutely loves daycare. And for those of you with children, I don't know how this is, but you go to pick up your child and they like want to stay at daycare, that's, that's Zora. Um, so when we get home and I'm like, okay, time to eat, time to, you know, do our routine. And, you know, she takes her evening nap and then she wakes up, you know, and she, I think she side eyes me. I'm like, okay, I must get on your, I must get on your nerves when we're like cuddling on the couch. So I would say 
the past year has been fun for her. I think she's had a wonderful time. But then she'll say my dad sometimes gets on my nerves. <laughs> I love that. No, I mean, not that you get on her nerves, but I love that story. <laughs> we take Lily to daycare as well. And at the end of the week, she gets a report card. And it lists the other dogs, that her dog friends that she played with mm -hmm. that week. So, and I always ask her, how was school? And I, I don't know why. Because she just looks at me like same as it was the other day. But <laughs> anyway, um, can you talk a little bit? So you're a faculty member now. Kind of how did you get into higher education and decide, okay, this is where I'm going to make my career? What's your, your story into your role right now? Yeah, I don't want to have a drawn out story, but I obviously want to make some connections. So I was you know, an undergraduate student at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, had a wonderful experience. Uh, freshman year was hard for me uh, transitioning. I went to private Catholic school and, you know, graduating with a thousand people to a 40,000 campus was a little bit of a culture shock. But then there were some internal kind of things happening with me as far as my faith and religion. And I really struggled my, my freshman year and then my sophomore year, fall semester, I actually left and went to Marion College in Indianapolis, Indiana, and joined the seminary for six months. Uh, thought I was wanted to be a priest, was called to be a priest, got into it, realized this is not, this was not for me. Um, and then six months later, I actually went back to Indiana University for the second semester. But when I went back, I was like, if I'm going back, I want to commit to making this a meaningful experience and I want to get involved and I want to get outside in my comfort zone. So when I went back, I just really immersed myself into like the co-curricular, joined a fraternity, got involved with leadership, involved with the union board there. And through that experience, it was kind of like, oh, student affairs is an option. Uh, the dean of students at the time, Dean, dean McKegg, who's retired now, the director of the union at the time, uh, Bruce Jacobs, for anybody that, that, know, that went to any university or passed through there, they are two legends. Um, and I had conversations with them. And it's like, hey, I want to do student affairs. This is something that really interests me. Um, they, and they advised me that it would be a, a great experience uh, and I, I would be good for it. But right after undergrad, I actually stayed. I didn't go straight into the master's program. I actually stayed and worked. I worked at a greeting card company for, for, for a year. And then I worked in financial aid for a year and then as an academic mentoring coordinator for this first generation uh, college student in transition program. And then I went back to the master's program full time. And that experience between undergrad and the master's program, I, for me, was informative in how, what type of student affairs professional that I wanted to be. Um, and I, I just really gained a lot from that experience in ways that I was able to make connections to what was the actual curriculum, how could I critique what people what we were learning in, in student affairs, why why the why the seven vectors were problematic, right? I had some context in thinking about those things. Um, and from there I went on to Iowa State, uh, where I met you. Uh, do you remember the first time we met? Do you remember this story? I, I tell this story sometimes. <laughs> I was thinking about it over the weekend. Was it when we walked from the Dean of Students office building all the way over to the Academic Success Center. I think it was you and I. Yeah. And Michelle's sentence, all the way, should be stressed. Because <laughs> it was clearly across campus. But we walked up, the, we got off the elevator and walked in, and we were like, hey, we're here for the, I think it was the grad student training for 
for student affairs and you were like, you are in the wrong place, but I will take you to the right place. And from then on, I was like, oh, this woman walked clear across campus with us. I was like, she's a friend I should have. <laughs> I do remember that. It was hot that day too. It was, it was a hot day, yeah. yeah. But Iowa State, Iowa State was, was also um, contributed to, to how I wanna show up, um, not only as a student affairs person, professional, but also as a faculty member, as an educator. Uh, my time there was, was transformative in the sense of the opportunities that I got to engage with, the people. Um, I don't necessarily miss Ames, Iowa, but I miss the people and the connections that Ames, Iowa afforded me. Uh, and yeah, when I was there, I thought I, I went there, I was like, I wanna be a Dean of Students, I wanna do this, I wanna do that. And through my time in the, in the doc program there, I, I grew into enjoying teaching, uh, falling in love with the possibilities of what re how research can inform our practice. Um, so yeah, then I decided to be a faculty member and stayed there for a couple of years, coordinating the undergraduate leadership studies program. So to this day, that's my favorite job is I got to take students to Sweden every summer for our global leadership study abroad to Sweden class uh, program and take them for a month. And I still was like, that's, that was really my favorite. I really enjoyed that, that job. Um, and after that, I was interested in a tenure track position and that there was, it was kind of dragging their feet on if that position would come, become a tenure track position. And Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts became available. And I went there for a couple of years and then transitioned here to Florida State. And I just finished my third year as an assistant professor in our higher ed program and our undergraduate leadership studies program. Awesome. So as you as you think about kind of your your path, one of the things we always say about student affairs in general um, is it's a small field. You know, if you don't know somebody, you know somebody who knows somebody. So thinking about your own experience, what what are the names of a couple of people? Because um, when I first asked this came up with this question, it's like, who is the one person? And everyone said, there's no one person. So who, who are a couple of people who have been particularly important in your journey? Um, and again, just to sort of play on this notion of connection and people listening might be like, oh yeah, I, I know that person. So who comes to mind for you? Yeah, I already named two, Wadima McKay and Bruce Jacobs. And Bruce still, like, every time, if I if he sees an article, if he sees an award, he'll still, e even in retirement, he's like, I'm sitting on the beach or sitting on the porch, and he'll email me um, a congratulations. And that just, it just always brings a, a smile to my face. But two people I want to talk about in the context of this conversation are two people that you know and you have gotten to work with very closely. Uh, and I'll, I'll start with Dr. Kroom. I'll start with Natasha Kroom, who is my dissertation chair. And in many ways, she was the constant, besides my cohort, who I'll talk about here in a second, she was the constant through my doctoral program at a time, as you know, Michelle, there was no consistency in that, in that higher ed program, whether doc or master students, just because of what was happening in the program, uh, you know, faculty leaving um, and going on to other opportunities. Uh, and Dr. Kroom was very much the consistency for many of us during our, our time time there. And I've just always appreciated her, not only as a faculty member, but as a friend. And really thinking critically about the type of critical 
uh, faculty member that I wanted to be when thinking about interrogating our field from a from a critical lens. And I've always appreciated her commentary. I've always appreciated uh, her support for for me. The other person is Dr. Ann Gamsertoff, who I, I don't know if I've ever actually said this to Ann, but I've seen Ann as a mentor. She was another person that was just a consistent person, but she was the I believe she was the first person I got to as a faculty member TA with as a doc student. And taking her class, I always knew that she was organized, structured, always loved the flow of the scaffolding that she would do. Um, she taught student affairs assessment. But then to see that from behind the scenes and the amount of time and preparation that that takes, the dedication that that takes. And I, and I learned so much from her and I continue to learn from her. And she's one of those people that an opportunity comes or uh, really thinking about my career, she's someone that I'm always, I'm just, I just know I'm just always going to consult and have a conversation with her. There will be a few months that goes by and I'll just drop her a message like, hey, we haven't checked in in a while. You know, it's time for, it's time for a check-in. And I've just always appreciated how she shows up, uh, how she advocates, how she moves and shakes politics, how she moves around and about politics. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from her being a long-term student affairs administrator and then how do you tra how do you translate that into really we talk about scholar to practice but there's only so many of us that can do that in a way that creates learning um, and I think she's just one of those people that I always want to model after um, and learn from. Awesome, thanks for that, Cameron. I really appreciate it. Um, all right, so this is actually you set me up perfectly for this next question. So thank you for that. So you've talked about. Dr. Kroom, you talked about Dr. Gansmertop. What about Dr. Beatty? What is your philosophy as a teacher in your faculty role? Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot because I've been working on a narrative for, as you know, a promotion and tenure, and you talk about your teaching philosophy, your teaching effectiveness. And for me, I've really been thinking about this, and it's for me, the, the philosophy as a teacher, your teaching philosophy is ever evolving and ever changing if you are really committed to the work of teaching. So where I am right now, I'm not sure if my answer would be this three years from now, because it definitely wasn't this three years ago. Um, so I think where I am right now and thinking about my philosophy as teaching is really thinking about not only, you know, this scholarship to praxis, practice to scholarship, but thinking critically about how do we really engage and address inequities in higher education? How do I bring that into the pedagogy of designing a course, implementing a course, executing and evaluating a course? Um, how do I model and thinking about uh, that we're all learners, we all have something to contribute, but we're also all teachers, right? And thinking critically about how do I set the tone for that? Um, when I was at, even when I was at uh, Salem State, it was very much a, I'm Cameron. When I got here, and it became, I'm Dr. Beatty, even when I would tell you to call me Cameron. And they would say like, that's just the culture or, or quote unquote, a Southern culture. Uh, but with that came this, I'm the E big expert in the room because Dr. Beatty, I'm obviously the instructor of record and other things. And with calling me Dr. Beatty, in some ways it, it sets up uh, this, this barrier in the sense of I'm the keeper of knowledge. So then I get to validate what knowledge is important in the learning space. And for my philosophy of teaching, I've had to navigate kind of through that. And under, I understand why, um, you know, some people are called doctor and the, the work that goes into that, the respect that comes along with it. 
but for my philosophy of teaching, if I believe that we are all in a space to, to learn from each other, I have to spend some time working through that as an educator at the beginning of a semester, at the beginning of, of establishing a learning community. And I think that now contributes to how I approach not only teaching, but how I approach facilitation, how I approach uh, giving a lecture or giving a guest presentation is really thinking about what are people's expectations entering the space? How do I meet those expectations or disrupt those expectations if they're meant to set up a status quo about who's the, who's the keeper of knowledge, who's the BE big expert in the room? And my philosophy is for us to all know that our lived experience and we bring that to a learning space is just as valid as somebody we're citing in an article and, and thinking more critically, critically about that, especially for, and I say especially because of my context and where I sit, not especially because it's more important, for higher education professionals, student affairs professionals, higher education future faculty, if, if we're really about doing the work, then the work has to be rooted in addressing inequities and addressing uh, places of status quo that perpetuate those inequities. So I have to start to model then what that looks like in the classroom. And how does the, what, what you've talked about, how does that connect to your areas of research? Um, because yeah. I know there's an overlap there. So talk yeah. about what are you interested in, in creating knowledge around? Yeah, so I, I consider myself a leadership educator in the sense of doing leadership education, of thinking about specifically undergraduate students, how they learn leadership, how they make meaning of leadership, and then how do they take those, those meaning-making opportunities into whatever field they want to go into and apply that. Um, and for me, leadership should be about making change, hopefully making positive change. But if you're going to be, able, if you're going to do leadership, then there has to be some type of transformation or, or change that happens if you're engaging in the leadership process. Otherwise, you're just doing management. Otherwise, you just hold a, hold a title. So I make that distinction for my undergraduate students, which is then rooted in the type of research that I, that I do was specifically looking at socially just leadership education, how undergraduate students come to learn, what is leadership, how do they apply that, and then more specifically, um, a lot of my research looks at the experiences and meaning making of students of color, historically white institutions, especially those students that are on the front lines of calling for addressing inequities, addressing racial justice on campus. Some, we, we, some people call it protest or activism, but for me, it's like there's there's still there's leadership learning happening in that, and what can we gain and understand from that as higher education professionals of how students are learning about leadership through their engagement of addressing addressing uh, inequities or injustices on on their particular particular campuses. So I love that because um, it definitely is um, the concept of activism, advocacy, you know, student org leadership, all of those kinds of things. It could be a little bit of everything, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you choose which projects to take on and which ones to sort of either postpone or decline because there's only so much of your time to go around. So how do you, how do you choose your projects? <laughs> I still forgot that out, Michelle. <laughs> That's this is probably when I should be calling Dr. Krim and Dr. Uh, Gensmer Um I'm still figuring that out. Uh, 
there's the project this summer and I got asked and I went into the conversation rooted in saying no, because I'm just juggling too much right now. And of course I come out of the project and I'm on the project. I am on the project in a limited capacity than in normal times, Cameron would have just all for it. But I'm still struggling with that just because uh, the big the big answer or big the the larger answer to your question is if it aligns with some of those things that I've already highlighted and it makes sense, then I want I want to be involved and want to jump on it. Now, when there's a lot of things that align and make sense, then you know you 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 can't hold them all in your arms, um, and that's some things I'm definitely struggling with now, especially as a junior faculty member. Um, and trying to be really specific. The good thing is that I have the opportunity, and in many ways the resources here at Florida State with our Leadership Learning Research Center, that sometimes I can fold in some projects into our Leadership Learning Research Center here at Florida State and get some graduate students some opportunities um, to get involved. Um, our particular center, we employ, or graduate students work with us for the office within the doc program that you know gets the opportunity to work with them. We have eight doc students in our program that are full time that, that work in our center. Um, and I get the opportunity to think about, okay, does this project not only make sense for me, but does it make sense for the center? Does it make sense for the graduate students I advise or supervise for them to be able to engage and have an opportunity uh, to get some experience, to contribute their expertise. Many of them are coming from a student affairs professional background and have some expertise around the topics that we're engaging with. So I think about that and now I think about the work in that way of, okay, does it make sense for me, my interests, my projects, does it make sense for the center um, I'm the associate director for, does it make sense for the under for the doctoral students in which I get to work with? It's now how I think more broadly about, about projects. Great. Yeah, and that's totally a self-serving question because I'm still trying to figure it out too. <laughs> So what are what are other things that you're involved in? I mean, I think sometimes people outside of faculty roles think, oh, you teach or, oh, you teach and you do your research. There's also service. There's also some that hits on multiple aspects of the work. So what are some other other pieces of work that you're engaged with that um, hopefully you enjoy? Yeah. So I just wrote off a three-year term, uh, well, two-year term, three-year term, working with the Coalition for Men and Masculinities with the with ACPA. And that, that was an awesome, awesome experience. And to see, even in this short time, uh, how Kyle Ashley and the team have, have reimagined and continued to, to contribute to the growth of what the coalition of men and masculinities and the possibility that it could be and the opportunities and resources that it can be for our field. I mean, um, that is something I spend a lot of time with and excited to continue to see that grow. And I was spent so much time with the coalition during the doc program and as a junior faculty member that I want that I've transitioned to the commission for professional preparation and going to be doing some work with with that commission and I'm excited to engage with that. I've been engaged with ACPA since my master's program and it's just, it's a professional home for me. So that's where I like to spend some service, some service time with, uh, within the work and doing uh, what, what ACPA is, is striving to do. ASH has, in terms of service, the Association for Study of Higher Ed has taken up some time. I'm on the program committee this year. And that has been really nice to really live out the dream 
not only of Dr. D.L. Stewart as the president of ASH currently, but Dr. Natasha Kroom and Zena Calazzo of thinking about the program, a hybrid program coming in the middle of a pandemic, trying to get to, port, to Puerto Rico with this theme of, of, of border of borderlands, crossing borderlands. So it's been exciting to engage with the service part because it really thinks about how do we live out the teaching, the research, um, to really think about us as a profession, a profession that studies higher ed, a profession that enacts and and does student affairs within the higher education context um, in terms of ACPA. Um, so those are some two those are two big associations that I, I spend a lot of time with. Um, I'm also doing some work uh, with the Leadership Trainer Certificate Program, which is a nonprofit out of uh, a nonprofit organization called Leader, and I'm on the board of directors for. And it originally started in uh, Nicaragua of thinking about how do we offer leadership education to uh, college students, to young professionals in Nicaragua, just because there wasn't this thing called a feeder programs or track. So there was no boys and girls club. There's no organized sports. Uh, so they come to thinking about leadership in, in specific contexts. Uh, and my friend, John Kroll, uh, was like, hey, would you be interested in serving on the board? So I went down a, a couple, few years ago, it's been, I think since 2017, and I facilitated some learning and some workshops. And then there was some unrest in Nicaragua and the nonprofit kind of had to reimagine its purpose. They um, had, we, it wasn't safe to, to be there. So we've transitioned into this leadership certificate trainer program as an opportunity for professional development for student affairs professionals, nonprofit groups, uh, coaching, uh, organizations to think about their leadership, how they facilitate, how they learn leadership, and then how they facilitate leadership through their work. So it's kind of like a train the trainer program. And I've been involved in my free time, quote unquote, if that exists, of thinking about the curriculum for that program, thinking about how do we develop a program that's meaningful, that's rooted in diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, access. Um, and that's been fun. That's been fun to really think about the the span of our our work that we do here at Florida State of thinking about leadership learning. Great. Are there other projects you're involved with, um, research, service, or otherwise that you want to highlight? Yeah, my, my colleague and I, Dr. Kathy Guthrie, uh, who's amazing, and I feel so privileged to, in some ways, be a team player, a partner with her here at Florida State. She's the director of our Leadership Learning Research Center. We just released an undergraduate textbook uh, called Engaging in the Leadership Process, Identity, Capacity, and Efficacy for College Students. And it's a leadership book written specifically for college students. It's extremely digestible, uh, but we talk about and talk to college students about what does it mean to have an identity, a leader identity? How do you take in your social identities, your subordinate dominant identities and thinking about how you show up as a leader, how you show up engaging in the leadership process? We talk about capacity. So what skills, experiences, uh, tr attributes do you have and how do you continue to build those and build your or capacity for leadership? And we talk about efficacy. So what is your belief in what type of leader you want to be? What is your belief in what type of leadership you want to engage with? And then how do you go out and do that? 
five chapter book, really easy and digestible. But we, we wrote the book because even in our leadership program, we were like piecing articles together, piecing podcasts and videos together um, for our curriculum. And we were like, hey, why don't we just write something that really puts in the context what we, some of the learning outcomes that we want to achieve with our undergraduate leadership certificate. So we hope that it's a good resource. We wrote it so it could be used for curricular programs or co-curricular programs. So we uh, have some colleagues that have adopted it for for a, a first year experience program, for orientation. Um, so we're really excited about that book. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. And then we have another book written for leadership educators, practitioners, student affairs professionals that see themselves as leadership educators, talking about operationalizing culturally relevant leadership learning. So oftentimes we, we want to just pick, we pick up a curriculum or we pick up learning outcomes uh, and then we do the same thing that we've always done about achieving those learning outcomes, specifically in the context of leadership programs. And what we've called for is for people to, to take, a, take a pause and really reflect on how do we really think about the learners that are navigating our programs and how do we design programs that are specific to them. Um, that are more culturally relevant, that are more identity focused, that are more socially justice centered. Um, and we're really excited about that, that book that it should be out this fall, but it's specifically written for practitioners. Um, so we, we ask practitioners to think about these five dimensions of um, Hurtado's kind of campus climate and culture, and we reimagine them for the context of leadership. So for example, one of them is the historical legacy of exclusion inclusion. Do we, as leadership educators, know that not only about our campus, about our student affairs division, about our leadership programs, and really have we taken a self-assessment about who has historically been marginalized or excluded from our programs and who has been included, and what policies, what procedures, what practices have perpetuated that and upheld that, and can we really have an honest conversation within our leadership programs? Another dimension is the compositional diversity dimension, meaning who makes up our programs? Do, do we have data? Do we have an understanding of who that is? And can we take an assessment of that and why that is? Because we don't often do that as leadership educators. Oftentimes, even the students that you and I get to engage with, they go and take these coordinator positions or assistant director positions, and they're off and running. And oftentimes they're picking up and doing the things the way they've always been done for that particular institution. And we haven't taken a full assessment. Um, and oftentimes when we fall into that routine, we're either upholding oftentimes the status quo or continue to perpetuate leadership learning in ways that aren't culturally relevant. So our book that's coming out this fall kind of calls for that. And we're really excited about that, pro that project because it gives some reflective questions, it gives some processes, for, and it also gives narratives. So actually leadership educators that are doing things in culturally relevant ways and gives people examples of how it might fit with their campus. So we're really, really excited about that book. And I just wanted to not only plug it, but share the possibility of how it might be a resource for people. Okay, so you have the book for undergraduate students that you wrote, and now this one coming out for um, practitioners. Did like, was your plan all along to write two books? Did you start into one and realize, oh, you know what else will be needed is this other one? Like, how did how did the two projects come about? Yeah, so the first project was actually a doc student's idea, who's our, one of our co-authors, Erica Weiborg. Um, she was like, hey, we keep talking about our curriculum. Why don't we just write a book for our curriculum? Um, and the identity, capacity, efficacy, theme of that focus of that book is rooted in the culturally relevant leadership learning model. It's just a, it's a piece of 
thinking about how do you start with the learners, you start with the learner's identity, their capacity for leadership, their efficacy. The book for practitioners just builds on that. So the idea came about of thinking about this culturally relevant leadership learning model was out there um, for the past few years from Kathy Guthrie, uh, Laura Olstein, and Tamara Bertrand Jones. But people were people didn't know how to use like okay, there's this model, but how do you actually use and apply the model? Um, so that's kind of where the idea for the second book came is like the operationalizing, the application. How do we make meaning of this model so it actually informs practice? It's one thing to be theoretical um, and ask these reflective questions. It's another thing to do. How do you do this? Um, so then that's kind of how it, it came about. We did streamline it, like how we how they while we rolled them out, we thought it would make sense at least in our minds for the undergraduate text to come out and roll it out first and then understand that it, this could complement or they could sit, um, they could sit separately um, and individually for the context of who the, who the audience was for. But really, if you buy one, you should buy both, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, you talked earlier about kind of your trajectory into your faculty position. Are there things that you anticipated or a vision you had of what it meant to be a faculty member? That Are there things that surprised you? Are there things that you're like, yep, I was right about that. What What's your experience been? Yeah, I even as a doc student, you don't fully grasp faculty meetings and what takes place in faculty meetings. <laughs> And I don't know if it, was, if it was me being naive, but Michelle, the 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 stuff that the conversations, the dialogues that happen in a faculty meeting is something that took me by surprise, um, and that in a good in good ways and bad ways, right? So, you know, we as students are are the benefactors of a program. And many times we don't think about the decision-making process of how a curriculum gets designed, how a policy gets implemented, and we as and, and as I've learned, faculty spend a great deal of time thinking about thinking about these team thinking about these things. Um, so that was surprising to me about the amount of time and the conversations that go along with those things. Uh, what I've always appreciated is the autonomy of my time that I get as a faculty member. So that wasn't necessarily surprising and it's still something I appreciate. It's just sometimes it still has, I haven't necessarily mastered, okay, how long does it actually take me to course prep in relation to how long it takes me to get, even get going on an article? So how long does it take me to read and get feedback on a dissertation? Um, those are things that, yeah, I can plan when those things happen. <laughs> But even with me planning when those things happen, there's still not, not enough hours in the day to make all of those things necessarily happen. Um, so those are those are some things that, yeah, I knew that we as faculty have autonomy of our time. I just didn't know necessarily how long time, how, how much time a lot of some of these things take. Yeah. I tell people all the time, I work more hours as a faculty member than I ever did in any other role. It's just, I kind of know when to expect to be doing things or I get mm -hmm. inside that. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of sitting and I'm ready, but it's not there yet kind of moments, whether it's writing or course prep or any of that stuff. So um, so what advice would you give if, if someone's thinking, you know, this is the route I wanna go, I'd like to be a faculty member, what suggestions would you have? 
Yeah, I, I've had this conversation a couple of times over the past year, and most of most of them are uh, doc students, you know, current doc students, whether full time or part time. And I, my question back to them is, what excites you about being a faculty member? Because I think that's for me, that's a starting place of do I need to debunk something that excites you, or how do I how do I continue to fuel what excites you? And for me, it's the excitement that's going to carry us in ways. <laughs> when the work, when the process, when, even in getting, interviewing and navigating the job search process for a faculty member, you know, can be very demoralizing for, for people. So for me, it's like, if you can hold on to what excites you, that gives you energy, not only to navigate the process, but then once you're in it, and there's some days where I'm like, why the, like, why the hell am I doing this? And I remember why it excites me that's my advice is how do you just to continue to hold on to what excites you about about being a, a faculty member uh, that's 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 my number one number one advice number two is is it really is you have to I don't want to say weigh the pros and cons but really think critically about especially for people that are current student affairs professionals or working full-time or doing something drastically different than the, the faculty lifestyle that we just highlighted and laid out. For me, I appreciate the autonomy of my time. So having a position like this, I don't want to necessarily go back to a nine to five, if, you know, if those still exist, of, of thinking about, oh, I need to be on campus at this time because someone is looking for me or I can't leave the office until five o'clock because of this situation. That's not something I'm interested in going back to. So I think the self-assessment is, is that some people need that structure, some people like that, and they bring that into their, their faculty life, and after five o'clock, you know, it's that. But realistic expectations around this, whatever you're doing currently, stepping into a faculty role is not going to be that. So if you're a doc student, if you're a working professional, if you're coming from, from a different field and now want to enter into higher education, this is not that. And how do you really think critically about what your expectations is of that? and think about what happens when those expectations aren't met or if you're disappointed by what you thought that was. So I always have people really think like, you know, I'm all about self-reflection, but what, why do you want to do this? What do you want out of this? And what do you think this is, is, is always the conversations. Um, that might not be advice, but definitely reflective prompts that I always enter into the conversation about That's being a faculty member and experiences of faculty. Yeah. Because it is autonomy hand in hand with, um, you know, I've heard people use the word isolation, lonely, solitude, whatever. But a lot of the work we do, even when you're partnering on a project, your piece you're probably doing with yourself. And so, mm -hmm. um, but you do get more control. I, I really don't worry about getting calls at two o'clock in the morning anymore. So um it's it's what gives you energy i i love your initial thought about what excites you about this and is that enough to fill multiple cups as you mm -hmm. sort of decide what's next anything else that you want to talk about highlight insights to share no i think i'm good all right Hey, I appreciate that because almost everyone says, no, da, 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 da. and then they say something else. <laughs> so, excellent. Um, 
before we go, I wonder if you would be willing to share a quote that's meaningful to you or something in your world that's bringing you joy, you know, just sort of a closing snapshot of Dr. Cameron Beatty. Something, uh, and I apologize that I meant I should have been prepared to cite correctly, but it's a quote that keeps sitting with me of thinking about what you're currently doing is not what you always have to be doing. Um, and it's something that's been sitting with me in the context, not saying that I'm leaving higher education currently, but it's one that's been sitting with me in the context of, is this what I want to be doing for the next 30 years? And that doesn't, ex for me, it doesn't excite me. And I know some, some people when they're, they, this is, this is it for them. Um, but for me, that's not something that excites me necessarily. It's like, oh, do I want to be doing journal reviews <laughs> for the next 30 years? Do I want to be doing a course prep for the next 30 years? That's not something that I'm extremely excited about. And I don't have to be, right? Because mm -hmm. I think before, me not being excited about it was like, ah, oh, what's wrong with me? Why isn't this fulfilling for me? And that doesn't mean, me not being excited about doing the same thing for the next 30 years is not saying that it's not fulfilling or it's not giving me something, especially in the current. Um, but how do I reimagine what the possibilities are to be able to do other things um, that are outside of what is said that I have to do or what is my current role or profession? So that's something that's just been really sitting with me is what, I, you know, what I'm currently doing now is not what I have to be doing. Um, you know, 30 years from now. Yeah. Well, and coming out of, hopefully out of the pandemic, I mean, this has been an era of reimagining. So mm -hmm. I, I like that, that, that resonates. Well, I thank you very much. Um, it is always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Um, but I do know that time is a limited resource and the fact that you were willing to share some of your time with us it means a lot and I really appreciate it. Um, I, you can be a guest anytime you want. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I love having conversation and I really appreciate, like I'm taking notes as you're talking, right? So I'm like, oh yeah, I need to do that. I need to, there's a couple books now I need to buy, you know, all of those kinds of things. So um, just thank you so much, Cameron. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation, Michelle. We didn't have coffee, you know, we usually talk over coffee at conferences. So this this was this was good because we didn't yeah. get our conference check-in this spring. <laughs> That's right. A little filler to the next time <laughs> in in person at conferences. So well, thank you once again to our guest, Dr. Cameron Beatty. I enjoyed our conversation today. And anytime I talk to you, I enjoyed our conversation. Today's essay today broadcast or podcast is brought to you by SACSA and we thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without producer Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida. Thanks always for your support and collaboration, Jen. And then I'd also like to leave you with a quote. And the quote today is, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare by Audre Lorde. I actually chose this quote because it is included in Dr. Beatty's recent publication, Addressing Anti-Black Racism in Higher Education, Love Letters to Blackness and Recommendations to Those Who Say They Love Us, co-authored by Dr. Tanisha Tevis, Dr. Lorraine Acker, Dr. Reginald Blockett, 
and Dr. Eugene Parker. And I highly encourage you to read that. And if you have not, and if you have read it, you should probably read it again. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.